Bible, you'll find Romans 16. Our passage starts on page 1009 in that Pew Bible. The year is 57 AD, and a woman named Phoebe enters the city limits of Rome. Her journey began in the Greek city of Corinth, and she's made this journey, a long journey, from Corinth to Rome in order to deliver a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Phoebe was a Christian woman, a leader among Christians in Corinth, a successful businesswoman who used her success to fund ministry. And she was Paul's chosen person to deliver this letter to Rome. It's not a small thing. She's not simply a courier. Uh, she comes with a blessing and stature. Now, the Roman church, we don't think, was just one single group, uh, but rather it was multiple groups who met in different homes around the city. And we can't say for sure how this letter was first presented to them. Uh, it's possible that they all gathered in one large place, probably an outdoor space, and the letter was read to them that way in one sitting, or it's also possible, and perhaps most likely, that the letter was read in each of the individual homes where the church gathered. Phoebe, as the courier of the letter, would have been the reader of the letter. And so she would have stood, let's say, in each of those homes and for roughly an hour would have read the letter start to finish to the people gathered together there. After roughly an hour of reading, Phoebe would, arrive, would have arrived at these final words here at the end of our chapter 16. And as she began to read the final paragraphs of the letter, including the long list of names, many people would have gotten up and left because there was nothing really important in the last little part of the letter. All the good stuff was earlier. They would have said, man, chapter 8 blew me away. We can skip out on chapter 16, right? Is that what they would have said? Of course not. However, if we are honest, that might be how we sometimes treat the end of Romans as if chapter 16 is not really worth our time. It doesn't have meat. It's just, Paul's just landing the plane, names I can't pronounce, and blah, 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 and the end, and that's it. But I want to show you this morning why the final verses of Romans are among the most important. One of my prayers for our study of Romans has been that it would make us a stronger church, that it would make us stronger believers. I got that prayer from Paul. That was his desire for the church in Rome. He said so in chapter 1, verse 11. And then here again at the end of the letter, we're going to read here in just a moment, Paul again references the strength that comes from the gospel. So he starts the letter with an appeal for strength. He closes the letter with an appeal for strength. How do we know we have studied Romans well? We'll be stronger than when we began. Strength can be hard to come by. How often are we weakened by the sin in our life? Or how often are we weakened by crisis? And we know that we're weak when we begin to question God or to blame God, or to turn away from God. 
And so whether you've been with us for all 31 Sundays that we've been in this study, or if this is your first Sunday with us, there is strength for you at the end of Romans. There is strength for you in Christ. So my goal today is to show you the incredible strength God gives to those who have been saved by the gospel. And Paul closes his letter by showing us three ways the gospel strengthens us. Follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 17. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them. Because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul closes his letter with strength. He wants us to be strong and to know the strength that comes from the gospel. And so he shows us three ways the gospel strengthens us. How is it that the gospel makes us strong? How has Romans made us stronger as believers and as a church? The first way is this. We possess strength from the gospel that unites us. How does the gospel make us stronger? Well, we have strength from the gospel that unites us. In its unifying work, the gospel message makes us stronger. Paul closes his letter with a final command for watchfulness. He ends it with a warning to us. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Now, Paul's not concerned with divisive people in general, although they are a problem. He has a specific type of divisive person in mind. It's one who creates divisions and who creates obstacles contrary to the teachings you've learned. So this type of person separates Christian people from each other. They create divisions. They also separate people from Christ by leading them away from the gospel. Those are the obstacles to the teachings you have learned. The teachings you have learned are all the things about Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit that Paul has given us in the letter to the church in Rome. 
Now, why would a person behave this way? Why would a person choose to be divisive, to split the church and to separate people from Christ? Well, Paul tells us in verse 18, he says they're serving their own appetites. And then he tells us why they're so horrifically effective. He says they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. They, they're serving their own appetites. They prey upon unsuspecting believers. And it comes packaged beautifully with smooth talk and flattering words that are void of Christ or are mutilations of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel message? Paul just spent three-fourths of his letter explaining to us in beautiful detail the message of the gospel. From chapter 1 to the end of chapter 11, it is all an exposition of the gospel message. And the message is this, that although we are sinners against God, deserving of judgment, He has loved us. And He saved us from our sin and sin's penalty by giving Jesus to die in our place. And by faith in Jesus, we are united with Him so that what is true of Christ is true of us. He died to sin, and in Him, we died to sin. He rose to new life, and in Him, we rise to new life. He is righteous, and in Him, we are righteous. He is loved by the Father, and in Him, we are loved by our Heavenly Father as well. And so Paul warns us to avoid those who mutilate this message of the gospel. Friends, it matters what we believe about God. It matters what we believe about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation. And in this letter, Paul has given us eternal truths that cannot be corrupted without consequence. And so we must protect ourselves, and that protection is both an active work on our own, it's also a passive work, it's a protection that's provided by the church we belong to. In this church, God has given us pastors and elders and a staff that actively works to get you the gospel message faithfully in many different ways. In fact, one of the most vital tasks of our elders is to protect the flock from messages that mutilate the gospel. Why do you need a home church? You need a home church where your leadership is committed to the gospel, gripped by the gospel, and intent on protecting your soul from deviations that would devour you. And so that protection comes in a passive way through your church and your church leadership protecting you. But brothers and sisters, do you give this same oversight to your own soul? Are you protecting yourself from deceivers who come with smooth talk and flattering words? How would we know who the, these deceivers are? We'd like to think that it would be really apparent to us that they, they have little devil horns that they hide under hats, or they listen to rock and roll, or in the, their name tag says Antichrist on it, something like that. We just think it would be glaringly obvious that, that these sorts of deceivers, it's always them, whoever them is. It, it's people outside who are warring against us. But these people are effective. These threats aren't just from the outside. Did you notice where the threats come from in verse 17? The threat comes from within the church. It, it, it's a threat within the church. 
Not that we need to walk around suspicious of each other. Are you a deceiver? Are you? What are you doing? That's not what Paul's calling us to do. But we have to be aware. We often place the enemy outside. But what Paul is telling us to be aware of are mutilations of the gospel that come from within. And so what does that look like? Well, it can look like those who teach a spirituality absent of Jesus, such as is found in the New Age movement. It can also look like those who mutilate Jesus, like what is found in the insane and current rise of the Christian nationalism movement. It can also look like fellow worshipers who live for their appetites and then invite you to do the same. This is not the invasion of little devils. This is people we're side by side with who live for their flesh, for their sin, and do so with an invitation to you to join them. This deception is subtle. It is easy. It is attractive. It comes through casual conversations, through content creators and social media. It comes from many different places And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to speak directly to you for just a moment. You are living a life apart from Christ that has been deceived. Your choice to not walk with Jesus, your your choice to hold Jesus at bay or to be religious without him or spiritual without him, that's a choice made by deception. I don't say that to cast judgment on you and, and to, to beat you in the head, but rather to woo you away from that because you are too valuable, your soul too precious to stay in that state. Today is the day that you can turn from that deception and turn to the beautiful, glorious, gospel, eternal truth of our God. And that truth is this, that though you are a sinner against Him, though all of us are sinners against Him, He loves you. And his love for you is proven in that he has done what is necessary to rescue you from your sin. You don't rescue yourself through doing good things or avoiding bad things. You are rescued by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in your place for your sin. He is the one and only Son of God. No one could do for us what Christ has done for us. He is the very God we have sinned against. And yet he took on flesh. The eternal God became limited man. And he died on the cross in your place for your sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead. He had to be fully human in order to really live and really die. He had to be fully God at the same time for his death to be effective to save you. And his promise to you is this, is if you will turn from this deception, turn from the lies, the mutilate, all that, if you will turn to Christ by faith, you'll be saved, given eternal life, made a new creation, loved by the Father just as the Son is loved by the Father. His eternal life is your eternal life when you turn to Jesus Christ. And, and I want to... Well, I just I want you to feel the weight of that invitation today. I don't know how you could go another day with your eternity unsettled. And think of God's love and grace to you that even in this moment, 
In this moment, you would find yourself in this room on this day with this message and invitation from God who loves you and calls you to be his own. Hey, young person, don't bank on your parents' faith saving your soul. Don't bank on some religious pedigree to make you right with God. It is by your own faith placed in Jesus Christ that you find your rescue. Today, step away from deception and into the eternal glorious truth of God. Give your life to Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. This protection from deception is not just for those who are coming into the faith or who are new to the faith, but Paul continues in the end of his letter to show us that this protection is especially for those who are mature in the faith. Look at verse 19. He says, the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what's good and yet innocent about what is evil. So, so the church in Rome has a reputation for being generally healthy and being obedient to the gospel. And so while Paul thinks of them in positive ways, still he says, I want you to be careful. I want you to protect yourself. And as they do, as we do, he says that we endure with God until Satan is crushed under your feet. What great imagery. The language of that image is ancient language. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the Garden of Eden, where God tells the serpent that Eve's offspring will strike your head and you will strike his heel. You see, at the cross, Satan struck Jesus with what he thought was a death blow, but it was just a nick on the hill. And instead, Christ's death, resurrection, and eternal reign is the once and forever destruction of Satan. So the gospel unites us together in that unity built around Christ we find strength. With one hand, we hold on to the gospel. With the other, we hold on to each other. Unity without the gospel is foolishness. The gospel without unity is heresy. But brothers and sisters, God protects us through our unity. And in that unity, we find strength day by day. God is strengthening us through a gospel that unites us and holds us together. There's another way God strengthens us through the gospel at the end of the letter. And it's this, we have strength from the gospel that encourages us. There's encouragement here. When we're weak, beat down, we come in limping. What happens in these next few verses is meant to strengthen us and encourage us to persevere in the faith. In verses 21 to 23, we run into another list of names this list is much shorter than the previous list at the beginning of chapter 16. And there's one major difference between this list and that list. The major difference is this. The first long list of names, these are people in Rome to whom Paul sends greetings. But this shorter list is people in Corinth with Paul who are sending greetings to the church in Rome. So the first list, Paul's saying, hey, say hi to these people for me. The second list, hey, these people who are with me, say hi to you. Who are these people? Let's take a look at their names. First of all, we have Timothy. This is the same Timothy who receives 
Two letters from Paul in the New Testament, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Uh, he is Paul's young ministry protege. He would become the leader of the church in Ephesus in the churches around that region as well. Second is Lucius. We meet Lucius in Acts chapter 13. He's a Christian from a Jewish background, one of the prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch. We meet Jason, possibly, possibly the same Jason that we find in Acts chapter 17. He's a Christian from a Jewish background, living in Thessalonica originally. Uh, he hosted Paul in Thessalonica, and then he was drugged before city officials and questioned by them because of his work on behalf of the gospel. Uh, the next name in the list, Sosipater. Uh, Sosipater is possibly the same person found in Acts chapter 20 who is identified by Luke as Sopater. Those are the same names, just in different ways. If it's the same person, then Sosipater is a Christian from a Jewish background, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea. He traveled with Paul to do ministry in Macedonia. Next is Tertius. Tertius, this is a big deal in verse 21. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Paul is not the one sitting with quill and parchment writing these things out. Paul is dictating the letter to a secretary. The, the fancy word is amanuensis. And this man, Tertius, is the secretary or the scribe who's writing down what Paul says. It is incredibly rare, totally uncommon, that the secretary would have a speaking part in the letter he's dictating. But here we have it, Tertius, who's almost certainly a slave. The work of scribing letters, that was a slave's work. So he's almost certainly a slave. Another indicator he might be a slave is his name. The name Tertius, it means third. It's, it's not like Bill or Cody, it's, that's third. So he's the third slave, maybe the third child born into slavery, who knows. But it's incredible that we have this little detail in the letter. I, Tertius, also send you greetings in the Lord. After Tertius, we have Gaius. We meet Gaius in Acts chapter 20. He's from Derby. Possibly this is the same Gaius that is found in 3 John. He was baptized by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Gaius has a place in Corinth, and he is hosting Paul while Paul does ministry and while Paul writes this letter. So Paul and Tertius set up in Gaius's house as Paul dictates this letter and the letter is written down. The next name in the list is Erastus. Erastus was sent by Paul to do ministry in Macedonia with Timothy. They were like the lead team. And he's later stationed at Corinth. Uh, and in Corinth, he serves as the city treasurer. Paul gives us that detail here in the passage that Erastus is the city treasurer. Scholars alike agree that it is extremely odd that Paul would include this detail about Erastus unless it was notable for some reason. And to be the treasurer of a city like Corinth is a really big deal. Erastus has a significant and prominent public job in a major city, uh, it's, he's an important man with great influence. The next name is Cordus. We know nothing about Cordus. He's with Paul in Corinth. His name means fourth. 
For that reason, maybe he's Tertius's brother. Maybe they work in tandem through this secretary work. Um, but he's almost certainly a slave who is living in Corinth. These are the lists of the people who say hi, along with Paul. I'm struck by two things regarding this list of names. First, I'm, I'm once again struck by the incredible diversity in this list of names. We have Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, powerful and powerless. Now, when Paul listed these names, he's not trying to make a statement about diversity in the church. He's just simply displaying what is naturally present among God's people. And so we have Tertius, who's a slave and is loved by Christ and a person of great dignity and worth in the same church as Erastus, the city leader. Nobody knows Tertius. Everybody knows Erastus. And yet, at the cross of Jesus Christ, they are brothers through faith in him, and they are members of the one in the same family. I think it's astounding. The second detail that strikes me about this list of names is Paul's purpose for giving them to us. Why did Paul send greetings from these guys? I mean, it's possible that Paul did this just because it's good manners to do so. This is how you end a letter uh, in uh, the first century. That's possible, but I, I don't think Paul wastes ink just on formalities. I think there's purpose even if this is something that's just proper to do in the etiquette of letter writing. You see, here's my guess as to Paul's purpose behind this list of names. Paul has just told the church to be united in the gospel. And then he lists the names of these people, these different people, who are united by the gospel and for the gospel. These eight people are all working for the spread of the gospel in and around Corinth. So this is Paul's way of saying, look, it can be in Rome just as in Corinth. And this is what it looks like. These eight names plus me, this is what it looks like. It reminds me of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where the writer of Hebrews says this. says, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. This team of eight plus Paul, they are our cloud of witnesses. They are witnesses who testify of the enduring power and joy of faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's just been calling the church to a unity and a love and a togetherness from chapter 12 to now. And now he says, this is what it can look like whenever we cling to Christ and press forward together. That portrait of these leaders should encourage us as a church. It should encourage us that a church of people from many different walks of life can contend for the gospel together, just like the saints of old. And it might encourage us in our own trials and struggles to remember those who have passed the gospel down to us and those who have endured so much for the sake of Christ. When did you last pray with gratitude for the men and women who have shaped your faith? And do they know how they have impacted you? Maybe this week, if you have the opportunity, maybe this week you should send them a message letting them know 
what their impact on your walk with Christ has meant to you. You see, God has given us treasures of people who serve as examples and inspiration for our walk with Christ. These examples are encouragement to us. When we are weak, when we are beat down, when we are lacking strength, they are our encouragement that holding to Christ by faith is worth it. We endure to the end. We persevere all the way. And the example of those who have come before us gives us encouragement to do so. So we have strength from the gospel that unites us, strength from the gospel that encourages us. And finally, we have strength from the gospel that leads us to praise. We have strength from the gospel that leads us to praise. How do you end the greatest letter ever written? You end it with praise. These final verses are an unbelievable doxology from Paul. Look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ. So he praises God for the ability of the gospel to strengthen the church. Again, the gospel message is not only for the salvation of sinners, but it's also for the strength and the sanctification of those who believe. And then, middle of verse 25, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God. So Paul then praises God that though his salvation plan was a mystery for ages, it's now been made known. All that the scriptures prophesied about the Messiah, about Jesus, has come true in Jesus. Those scriptures prophesied about him. He is the very revelation of God. And at the end of verse 26, here's this revelation to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And so through Jesus, God reveals that one of the goals of the gospel is the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. The gospel's always been a global message. God's redemptive plan has always involved people of all nations. He's not just Israel's God. He is the God of all who believe. And then verse 27, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever. It's one single sentence, verse 25 to the very end. It's one sentence. I think it should be read in all caps lock, volume cranked up to 11. It, it's a crescendo of praise. So Paul here at the end is calling us to join with him in this praise of God. When you behold the gospel, you're not only seeing the love of God and the justice of God, but also the wisdom of God. He's the only wise God through Jesus Christ. God's wisdom is most revealed through the work of Jesus Christ, and because of this, he's due glory forever. Paul praises God here at the end of the letter, just as all believers will praise God for all eternity. And so church, give God praise. Praise Him for the gospel. And praise God for the victory we have through our union with Christ. Praise God for our church. Praise God for the gift of Christian friendship. Praise God for the salvation that comes to all those who believe. And may we never cease to praise in the strength the gospel provides. So this is it. 
in the book of Romans, Paul has taught us the gospel so that we would be stronger believers and a stronger church. And we are stronger because the gospel unites us, it encourages us, and it leads us to praise God. So what does it look like to be strong in the Lord? It looks like unity and encouragement and praise. How do I know I've been strengthened in my walk with Christ through the study of the book of Romans? Because I have greater unity with my church. And I have greater encouragement to persevere. And I praise God for all he has done for me in Christ and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the letter closes with a single word. Amen. That's the last word in the book. Now, we use amen uh, to mean essentially the end to our prayers, right? It's a prayer ender. Or it might be a sermon point agreer from time to time. Uh, I would say something and you would say amen. It's an old tradition. Church people don't forget. We're not so familiar with it, but it's a lovely tradition. And preachers love it when people agree with them and, and say amen back to them. No, I'm, not going, I'm not taking that. I'm not taking your cheap pity amen. But that's sort of how we use the word. End of prayer, agree with the sermon point. Here's what the word means. The word means so it is, or so be it, or may it be fulfilled to me, to us. The use of amen was a custom that was passed from the Jewish synagogues to the Christian churches. When a person finished reading or teaching in the assembly, or they had offered up a solemn prayer to God, the whole assembly responded, amen, making the substance of what was spoken their own. So someone has prayed, and then the whole church says, amen, as if to say, may it be so for us, may it be fulfilled in us. And so ending the letter with amen is a call to action. It is as if Paul is telling us that the truth of this letter is to be fulfilled in our lives as we hold to Christ. He is calling us to faith-filled action. The last word is not a throwaway. It calls us to action. This amen is not a finish line, but a starting line from which we are launched stronger than we were before with Christ and His gospel. And this amen is a commitment to love and honor and bear with each other. This amen is a proclamation of the gospel to all nations, especially those places where Christ has not been named. This amen is endurance, knowing that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. This amen is confidence that the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will grant us everything. This amen is defiance against those who condemn and against those who would try to separate us from the love of Christ. This amen is a declaration that we are more than conquerors through him 
who loved us, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, amen, is a song of praise to God, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory forever, and all God's people said, Amen. May it be fulfilled to us. Brothers and sisters, this is the book of Romans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you, for no one has loved us as you have. Sinners that we are, broken through and through by our own sin, God, you have shown remarkable love to us. When we think of the price of our salvation, we praise your holy name. That you, the, the, you took the first move, you, you took action on our behalf. We didn't ask or even want it, but you weren't content to leave us to the penalty and punishment of our sin. Thank you for so great a salvation as this. We praise you that nothing can separate us from that love. Thank you for a gospel message that is true eternally. And my prayer this morning, God, is... First, that you would rescue those who turn to Christ in faith. Woo them today. Let them see in Jesus all they've longed for and desired. Lord, let them hear your call clearly against the backdrop of every other deceiving voice. Let them hear yours bellowing, calling, pleading, embracing. Let this be the day a new life comes to them through faith in Christ. And Father, let us be strong in the gospel. United, encouraged, giving you praise and glory for all you have done for us. Father, thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of your church, and for Christ who is coming again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.